Karen picked out our song for this morning. <laughs> and then he changed it. <laughs> Which song did you pick, Karen? You don't remember. Uh, thought we'd go with Psalm 51 this morning. What do you know about Psalm 51? Page 819 in mind. Uh, psalm 51 is a, a psalm of David. It's a psalm of repentance. It's about a repentant heart. Uh, yeah, psalm for pardon. So whoever gets to Psalm 51 and would like to read it out, please do so. God 
and his character in that incredible, um, trying to describe that word in Hebrew, it, it expresses so much about the character of God that even though he knows us, and even though we're this yucky, unclean person, he chooses to love us and show kindness to us and be gracious towards us. And that that's the, the choice of God for us, and he desires to deliver us from sin. And David knows that. He gets it. So he throws himself at the mercy of God. And we're, we're looking in John chapter 4 this morning, and I thought I would um, share with you one of the other few places in the Bible that uses very similar words to what is being used in John chapter 4. So in John chapter 4, um, many of you know, at least the first part of it, is the story of the, the woman at the well in Samaria. And uh, actually she's at a place called Sychar, which is where that well is outside of Shechem. And uh, she's, she comes to Jesus and Jesus actually talks to her, which is pretty amazing. And basically, Jesus kind of lays her life bare, just like David had his life laid bare by the prophet Nathan. And rather than running away and hiding in darkness, she stays in the light and comes to understand the mercy and grace of God and what he's trying to do. We see that this was unusual. It's an unusual response. I'm going to take you to Jeremiah chapter 2, where you see the same kind of language of the contrast between heaven and earth. So we know that uh, in John, John, his main uh, theme that he wants us to understand, he wants us to know who Jesus is, and that in knowing him, we'll have life. So we read in John uh, 20, 31, and I told you I'd read it every week, so I'm going to read it again. We read in John 20, 31, that um, there are many things that, that Jesus did and performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So he has this um, three-fold theme that he wants us to understand. He wants us to know that Jesus is the Christ, he wants us to believe, and that that should impact our life in a significant way, and that we um, walk in eternal life in Christ. We have life in his name. So, um, gave you a, a minute there to turn to Jeremiah chapter 2. What's happening in the call of Jeremiah, the, the call of Jeremiah comes at a particular low point in the history of the Jewish nation. So I kind of did some history last week and told you about the divided kingdom, the north, northern kingdom, the southern kingdom. Northern kingdom being called Israel, uh, came after and followed the, the sins of Jeroboam, um, who rebelled against the, the southern kingdom, which would have been uh, descendants of David through Solomon and, and, uh, and his son. Uh, and that became Judah, Judea. And what happened is, is that as that divided kingdom progressed, um, the northern kingdom was completely conquered by the Assyrians and was transplanted with another people group. And that's where the Samaritans came from. And we kind of retreat, we recapped that last week. Well, as time progressed, Judah didn't fall at that point. Judah got to the point, though, 
through uh, evil kings. In fact, one of the most evil kings of all time actually served the longest. You would think that God would take evil out of the way, um, but in this case, he let it play its hand um, for a period of years. The longest king in all of Judah um, served, and he was the most evil. And was the result of that is that the people's heart, with, with evil leadership, their heart was revealed as, as evil as well. So it wasn't just the leadership that had a problem. It was all the way down to the individual, the people that were following. The followers had a problem as well. And God knew that the only way to redeem his people was through uh, a massive correction. And that was going to come at the hands of the Babylonians. In fact, the time of the kings, the delegated king, um, where God is the true king and he would have a delegate king that would lead his people uh, until Messiah, the true king came, that would end. That it, it wasn't working for the people, their heart was just too corrupted, um, and they were not able to continue in that. So he brought the Babylonians, and that's when Jeremiah was called into ministry. As a young man, he came in, and the Lord calls him out, and we're going to read in chapter 2, and I'm going to read chapter 2 of Jeremiah, verses 1 through 13. And this is about the state of the, the heart of the people and what God was offering to them. And what we want to look at this morning is how we go from that state, because all of us find ourselves there, to a state of repentance where God can actually um, bring up within us wells of living water. So I'm going to go ahead and read Jeremiah chapter 2. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to me, that would be Jeremiah, saying, Go and proclaim in the ears of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, I remember concerning you the devotion of your youth, the love of your betrothals, your following after me in the wilderness, through a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first of his harvest. So he starts out with how the heart of the people, they, it had actually turned to God as, as their true king at one point in time. But it said, and it goes on to say, All who ate of it became guilty. Evil came upon them, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the families of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, What injustice did your fathers find in me, that they went far from me, and walked after emptiness, and became empty? Why did they not say, Where is the Lord, who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, who led us through the wilderness, through a land of deserts and of pits, through a land of drought and of deep darkness, through a land that no one crossed, and where no man dwelt. I brought you into the fruitful land to eat its fruit and its good things, but you came and defiled my land, and my inheritance you made an abomination. The priest did not say, Where is the Lord? And those who handled the law did not know me. The rulers also transgressed against me, and the prophets prophesied by Baal and walked after things that did not profit. So what he's talking about is the turning of the heart from knowing the true God to turning away from him to themselves as king. To uh, choosing their what they declared to be good rather than what God declared to be good. And it wasn't just um, the people, but the leadership as well. So it was a, a complete corruption that occurred. Therefore... I will yet contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your sons I will contend. 
for cross to the coastlands of Kittim and see, and send to Kedar and observe closely, and see if there has been such a thing as this. Has a nation changed gods when they were not gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this, and shudder. Be very desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So, what the, the contention of God is with his people is that they had done two things. They had turned away from him and basically made themselves king. Those are the two, two acts. What do you think repentance is? Pardon? It's taking your own crown, laying your own crown down. Right, it would be exactly the opposite. It would be the reverse of what's laid out in Jeremiah. Rather than rejecting the king and turning to your own uh, self as the source of life and the source of salvation, you do just the opposite. You turn away from yourself as a source of right and good and salvation and you turn back to God. So repentance is exactly what Jeremiah was calling the people to. He was calling them to a place of repentance. He was reminding them of who God was, of his loving kindness. He wanted them to get it like David got it. And that's what God's call is uh, to us. And that's the reason John is going to, the effort that he's going to, to help us understand who, who Christ is, what he came for, what our obligation is in that. So once you understand who Christ is, you're confronted with a choice. You can choose to embrace him for who he is, the true king, or you can choose to turn away from him and dig your own sister, your own source of life. Even though he's the source of true life, living water, you can choose to dig your own sister. That's what happens when you come to know who Christ is, you have a choice. You can either accept him, that's to believe, and that's what I list as the, the middle bullet there, you know him, you turn to him in belief as true king. And then you do that in a substantial way. You follow him. And in that you have life. Yes? <clears throat> so sorry, I can't resist this. Go for it. When you, when you dig your own sister, it can run dry. So this week, we have the well. <laughs> and so, actually, Boulder came over and helped me yesterday. We said a whole different thing. I've had another option, but the point is, we learned this week what it is to run dry. So, if Jesus is living water, you know, we want to tap into that. Absolutely. And if you do it yourself, you, you know, you get a little heat. Well, that's that's an object lesson, a perfect object lesson. So, 
why do our sources of water run dry? A lot of things. Maybe we didn't dig our well deep enough. Maybe we used too much and there wasn't anything left. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Yes? I think God allows them to run dry. Mm-hmm. That's yes. Yep. That's exactly what Jeremiah was saying. That God would bring upon them a period of no rain. Where the only thing that would, would stand is that which was truly connected to the source of life. And we understand that a remnant was taken out. And interestingly, from that remnant came Messiah. Right? Um, the last uh, king in the line of David that was taken out of uh, Babylon. He reigned in, in Jerusalem, or he was taken out of Jerusalem to Babylon. Reigned in Jerusalem for three months, Jeconiah. And when he was taken out, after three months, his heart was still evil. But in captivity, there was a change that happened. We know that because his children had a different view of life. They got it from somewhere, Right? They may have gotten been influenced by guys like Daniel and Daniel's friends, but we know that from the line of Jeconiah came Shealtiel and Zerubbabel. Great names. And if I had two more boys, it'd be Zeb and She. <laughs> but uh, we know that the line of Jesus actually came out of this remnant, right? Out of that correction, out of the time of drought, right? That's what is being reminded uh, to. The, the people in Judah who should have known God they should have known God because he already had shown that he was capable of taking them through the drought through the parched land and taking them into a land that they didn't even sow providing for them where they didn't labor that was the reminder that they got and yet they turned away they decided to, to dig their own cistern rather than tap the living waters so those were the two, two things that uh, were the uh, contentions that God was making. He was building his case as a lawyer would build a case. He talks also about the cisterns being broken, which would sometimes have, they would develop cracks, and even though they were positioned where rainwater would gather there, the water ran away. Yep. And what you needed was an artesian well or a, an artesian place where... Whatever the rain is made no difference. It kept on running. Right. And that's what God is. He He's the source. He's, he's the spring. We might be able to yep. uh, store up just a little bit once in a while, but then a crisis comes along and our cistern cracks and it's all gone. Right. And that's, that's the kind of well that Jacob does. Mm-hmm. So we looked last week about Jacob when he was on the run. He went on uh, a 20-year sojourn. So, gotta remember the story of Genesis. The story of, of Jacob is a story of transformation. Um, it starts out actually the first part of the story, the part that we read up until his name is changed, and up until the covenant is repeated for him personally. That's actually part of the story of Terah and his descendants, which included Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so we see that there's this story about the children of faith that are coming along. And Jacob comes out of uh, one of two sons of of Isaac. And uh, Jacob's a man of the world, right? 
he, uh, he's going to succeed and gain his uh, prosperity, his provision, his wealth, and his inheritance through deceit. He's going to um, be crafty and clever. And so he starts out, and first he steals the inheritance from his brother, gets the birthright. And then he steals the blessing from his brother, which is the prosperity that would follow. To the point that um, his brother would actually be subservient to him. That that's what, part of what that blessing meant. And his brother was so ticked off that he was going to kill him. That was the end of Jacob. So Jacob, the start of Jacob's transformation occurred when he got into a tight place and had to run away from his brother. And as he's running, God gives him a couple revelations. He gives him a revelation at a place called Bethel. And it wasn't called Bethel at that time. Um, although Abraham had built an altar there, when Jacob came to that place and he went to sleep, he had a dream. And that dream is actually captured in John chapter 1. Sometimes we call that Jacob's Ladder. It's a story where Jacob, on the run, lays down and he sees um, the heavens, the gates of heaven opened and a stairway or a ladder uh, descends to the earth. Heaven and earth are connected. And on that connection, the angels go up and down, right? But at the end of his dream, the gates close and God makes a proclamation to Jacob that Jacob is to go and and he gives him some information about Jacob's future and destiny and the promise of God. So Jacob then, puzzled, wakes up and he says, oh, I'm going to build an altar here. So he builds an altar and goes on his way. When he leaves that place, he's, all he has is the clothes on his back. He's on the run. And he goes into uh, the home of his uncle Laban and he ends up spending 20 years there. And over the course of 20 years, he learns lots of lessons. God teaches him lots of things. Um, he ends up in the course of that um, with 10 children, 11 children. The, the 12th is born when he's returning. Um, actually, more than that, uh, sons. There's 11 sons, and there are daughters in there. And um, he ends up working for 14 years in order to uh, make the bride price uh, that is required to actually have his wives. Um, and then he works uh, an additional six years to secure his fortune. So this is a guy, man of the world, and he's pretty clever. He does some, uh, some spiritual, what look like kind of spiritual practices. He takes some sticks and makes striped sticks in order to get spotted goats and all of this kind of stuff. And as far as accumulating his wealth, he's doing some, some tricky things. And finally, he leaves. But the reason he leaves is not because he couldn't, he couldn't have stayed where he was. He could have. In fact, he was invited to stay. He leaves because God told him to. So he's starting to go through that transformation in his life where he's starting to, to hear the voice of God in a way that's, that uh, a softened heart can hear. And he gets to a place called Peniel, Actually, he goes through a place called Manaheim first, which is the camp of God. And I'm going to blow this up just a little bit. So this is, this is uh, Jacob's path. He's coming from up here. And he comes down through this valley, and he's going to head over here. This is where our story takes place. And I know I covered a lot of this last week. He comes to this place here called Manaheim, 
which is uh, the camp of God, then he basically divides his, uh, his uh, wealth into two camps, and he sends them both out with the idea, still, a man of the world thinking, well, if one gets captured and slaughtered, one will escape, so he'll still have some wealth out there in the world. Um, and he sends them ahead of him, and then he divides out his family, that which is most precious to him, and he uh, has them go a little bit in front of him. And he stays here and he wrestles with God at this place right near Manaheim, and a place called Peniel, and that's where he actually comes full circle. He comes to that place of repentance, like we read that David achieved, where he recognized um, who God was and that all good things come from God and that true life comes from God. And he was not going to stop until he actually um, could touch that life to the point where uh, I expect... You read that story of his wrestling match. He says, I'm not going to give up no matter what. And God sees that change. And he lets Jacob know that he's God. That he has the power to bless or to curse. So he, he touches him in the hip. That touch of God actually cripples Jacob. He's never the same after that. And we wouldn't think of crippling as a good thing. But it was a constant reminder to Jacob of who God was. And God changes his name at that point. One who strives with God. And his name is changed to Israel. So from that point forward in the story, you start seeing the transformed Jacob. Now, he's not perfect. He still has a lot of, a lot of stuff to work out. But all of a sudden, he goes uh, before his brother, rather than sending his emissaries before his brother. And he lays his life at his brother's hand and says, you know, I'm at your mercy. And his brother forgives him, and it's a great reunion. And Jacob goes on, and he comes to this place called Shechem. That's the place where he dug a well to find the living water. So in this area right here, um, it's a very uh, dry area, but what happens is, is that the rain comes in, this is a, creates a rain shadow here, and you get a lot of growth on this side, and you get a little bit as it kind of crosses over. So what would happen is, right on this ridge line right here, that's the place where they build cisterns. They would, the, the rock here is that same Cenomanian limestone that makes up this whole ridge, of which Jerusalem is on part of that ridge. And it's soft enough rock that they could chip it out. And they would chip it out, and they would dig their cisterns, and then they coat them with plaster, and then they uh, put a little channel to capture the rainwater that does happen there. They channel it into the cistern and then they put a cap on it. That's what almost everybody in this region does. Jacob comes into that region and he digs a well. He's going after the living water. So he dug a well down 100 foot. That's a pretty good well. My well, which was built with the mechanical means that they have today, is about a 300 foot well. And it's considered a deep well for Clark County. A um, 100-foot well dug by hand, and this would have been hand labor, digging down, and then coating the inside of that to uh, a spring, living water that doesn't run out. It's not a cistern. was a significant feat. That's what Jacob did. That well stands there today. That well stood there in the day of Jesus. 
right? So this is a significant period that has elapsed uh, more than a thousand years from the time of Jacob, so it would have been um, from about uh, 2100 BC to uh, 29 AD, 28 AD. So that's a lot, a lot of years. That well still stood. From that time, we've got another 2,000 years. It still stands today. So that was a pretty significant accomplishment, that well that Jacob dug. And what, what Jacob learned that transformed his life, that caused him to live differently, and to start living a life of faith like his father and his, his grandfather was that wrestling with God, actually coming into the presence of uh, the one who was the source of the living water. And we actually see that kind of at the end of chapter 3 where um, John the Baptist is giving us the, the theology lesson which is essential for us to understand all of this uh, Gospel of John by it says, He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks from the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. So the first thing he wants us to understand is that there is um, a revelation that comes from God that is it's from above, it's from God. And it's different than the revelations that we might create within ourselves, the truths that we might uh, develop as our own. These are revelations from God. That which from, is from above is from above. That which is from below is from below. We will never understand God apart from revelation. We have to have him revealed to us. He has to make that effort. It says, what he has seen um, and heard, of that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. Here he's speaking of the one who is from above, the one who is from heaven. So if you have a King James or an NASB, it'll be capitalized, that he will be. Speaking of the Christ. What Christ has seen and heard, he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. So John is giving his, uh, his stamp saying, I heard and seen the Christ. So you need to listen to him. And he goes on to say, for he again capitalized, being the Christ, whom God has sent, speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. In other words, it's like a living water. It's like a spring. It doesn't have an end. It just keeps bubbling up. Right? The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. In other words, the source of that living water is the Son. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. In other words, you can end up with a broken cistern. That's the story, that's the theology. John wants us to get that theology. Um, and in this case, uh, I mentioned that this is probably actually uh, uh, a narrative insertion, even though it's quoted. It could be a direct quote of John the Baptist, but it's probably more a, a constructive quote. And then we enter into our story, which is this morning. Therefore, the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were. And he left Judea and went away again into Galilee. So Jesus is going to go, let me back out one, one frame here. Jesus had been in Jerusalem, down here, and while he was in Jerusalem, he challenged a couple of institutions 
of the Jewish religion. He, he challenged the institution of the temple. You recall he went in and he overturned the temple and he made a statement that is captured in John that you don't see anywhere else in the Bible. He said, uh, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. He was talking about the temple of his body, his physical body. Recognizing that the purpose of the temple is the place where people come into communion with God. That was where people would, like Jacob, when he wrestled with God and came in to the point where he was face to face with God at Peniel, that's what the temple was about. The people could come into God's presence in the temple. And Jesus said, what you've done with the temple as an institution is, a, is totally wrong. I am the temple that you come to. If you want to come face to face with God, you come to me. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Right? He's going to disclose. And so he challenges the institution of the temple. He challenges the institution of um, rabbinic teaching, of the scribe. Uh, where he has a teacher come to him by night, Nicodemus, who should know what this is all about. He has the law, he has the prophets, he has the writings. He should know about the Christ. And Nicodemus comes and says, you know, what you're doing is pretty unusual. People don't do what you're doing. And uh, Jesus says, yeah, let me tell you what the truth of the matter is. What the truth of the matter is, is that um, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Right? And you need to uh, be born into that kingdom. You need to be translated from your citizenship into the world into the citizenship of God's kingdom in order to have eternal life. You must be born again. That something has to change. Now Nicodemus should have known this, and so Jesus explains it to him in uh, what I'll call phenomenal language. So your object lesson was phenomenal language. Your well running out is uh, something that you can observe and touch. Uh, it's very real to your experience in reality, right? You experience the phenomena of nature. So Jesus used phenomenal language repeatedly to help people understand spiritual ideas. He used lessons from the farming. He used lessons... In this case, he's going to use a lesson from how you get uh, elemental nourishment. You have to have water in order to live. Right? So he's using phenomenal language to help communicate these things. He had challenged the temple. He had challenged uh, the rabbinic teaching. And now he's going to uh, challenge another institution, the institution of tradition. And that what people steep and, and build their lives around, you have to examine, is that true or is that not true? Is it based on the revelation of God or is it based on what man wants to do in order to feel good at the end of the day? Because sometimes when you're following God, you may not feel good at the end of the day. And that's an oxymoron. You look at, I was recently uh, challenged with uh, the story of Job, Right? Um, and this was from a, a young man who, at one point in his life, embraced an active faith. And because of the injustice of God that he observed in Job, has, has turned away. And questions, is that really the character of God that would allow that evil to be present in the world? 
This is a this is a valid question. We experience what is often called the problem of evil, which is one of the the four basic worldview questions that we have to answer um, as part of our faith and part of understanding who God is. What about that? That God would allow you to not feel good at the end of the day. Job did not feel good at the end of the day. He asked the question, where is my God? That's exactly what we read in Jeremiah. Why aren't these people asking me, where is my God? They're in a drought. Why aren't they asking? Right? So you can draw near to God and not necessarily feel good at the end of the day. Because he's in the process of growing you and challenging you. But he's never going to let you go. That's the definition of loving kindness. That God is always present with you, even in the midst of your challenge and trial. Sometimes this section of John is called the book of signs because specific signs are given, but in every instance where a sign is given, faith is challenged. In other words, Jesus doesn't always do what is expected. There's a great misunderstanding about what these signs are intended to do. They're not intended to be a replacement for faith. In fact, those that rely only on the sign to believe who Jesus is end up with a shallow faith. And when the trial comes, their cistern cracks because they built on something that wasn't, they didn't go down to the living water, right? And so Jesus knows this, and he's going to challenge it all along the way. And as he's challenging, in this case, the institution of building belief systems based on traditions of men. So you've got to look, what's the foundation of my belief? Is it true? He gets there and he says, he left Judea and went away again into, Je- into Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. How many see that phrase, had to, in their Bible? Yeah. yeah. Why did Jesus have to pass through Samaria? Because uh, what I'll say is, is that normally Jesus had gone down here to where John the Baptist was, and they were baptizing in this area, right in here. Jesus was baptizing some. John, or not Jesus, Jesus' disciples were baptizing some. It was a baptism of repentance. John's disciples were baptizing some. And I expect John the Baptist was saying with every baptism, follow him, pointing to Jesus. Because that's what John did. Well, John got arrested. He was arrested, um, and this area is called Korea, as part of when Herod the Great, uh, when he died, and his kingdom was split among his sons. One of his sons got this area here, which is modern-day Jordan, called Perea. And uh, John the Baptist was arrested and then sent to his brother Herod over here, uh, Herod Antipas, that was in uh, Jerusalem area. And so 
John got, uh, John the Baptist got arrested, was being shipped back to this area where another brother of Herod was reigning, and Jesus is right here. What does that mean if Jesus is doing the same thing that John the Baptist is doing? He's going to get arrested. If he stays there and continues his ministry in this area, he's not doing the will of his father. Because the will of his father isn't just to have people baptized into repentance, but to actually atone for the sins of the world, to be the savior of the whole world. If he's arrested here, that doesn't happen. So Jesus had to leave. He had to end up in this area up here, um, in an area where the influence of the Herods was not as great. There was more Roman influence there than Herodian influence there. Until you get further north um, and you, you get into the area of the, or further uh, east, and you get into the area of the Decapolis and the area of Caesarea Philippi. So those areas, they're clearly under uh, strong Herodian influence. But Jesus needed to get up to this area because that's where he was going to primarily lay the foundation of those who were learning discipleship. Remember, it's know, believe, and remain, abide. Become a true disciple of Christ. That's where he was going to lay that foundation for people to follow after his death. And that he would, at the end of that ministry, move back into this area and he would actually be arrested and he would be crucified. He would be killed. And what you read in the other Gospels, primarily, uh, and they're all kind of divided like this, you have a large portion of the Gospel that will be the Galilean ministry. And then you have a very, it may be a long portion in in narrative, but it's actually a short portion, portion in chronology. When Jesus, in his final days, comes down for the final festival of Passover and is arrested and crucified. What John gives us is he gives us a a more complete story of what's going on. He gives us Jesus' early ministry down here when he challenges the temple and and the rabbinical teaching. He gives us ministry that occurred in here, concurrent with John the Baptist. That doesn't exist in the other Gospels. This This is somewhat unique. And What we're going to see now is we're going to see Jesus now making that trip back up to Galilee where he's going to lay that foundation. Daniel? Um, I was just curious which way the Jordan River flows, north or south? Jordan River flows from here, Sea of Galilee, down through here to the Dead Sea. And the traditional way for Jews to make this pilgrimage between Galilee and Judea was to avoid this area because this area was what's called Samaria. That's what we were talking about. We read out of 2 Kings chapter 17 last week, how the Assyrians captured it, resettled it. The lions were eating the people, so they figured we must not be appeasing the gods. Let's bring back in a priest. The priest came back in, and what you ended up with was this religion where um, they could not accept the teachings of the prophets, They could not accept the writings, and so what they did is they rejected a large portion of the scripture and only kept the Torah, the first five books. And they formed a syncretic religion around that. They changed the place of worship 
from the temple in, in down here in Jerusalem to a temple um, right here at uh, Mount Gerizim. And they did this based on uh, some of the prophetic writings, but they then subsequently rejected them, which is interesting, because Joshua, when they settled the land, they actually came to this spot that we're going to read about, and there they actually read the blessings and the cursings on Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. And uh, so this area, because they were resettled and had this corrupted religion, the Judeans did not like them. They were impure. So what happened is Alexander the Great, so Judeans got conquered by the Babylonians, Babylonians got conquered by the Persians, the Persians got conquered by the Greeks, the general of the Greeks was Alexander the Great. When Alexander the Great conquered this part of the country, he actually set up base in Samaria. And that was kind of the center of how he was going to rule that area of Palestine or Canaan. Um, and from there, uh, then what happened is, is that the, uh, the Jews had already been released by the Persians. They had already come back and resettled this area. They had rebuilt uh, the temple in Jerusalem and rebuilt the wall under Nehemiah. Right? So we read that through the writings and that they had the Persian king's blessing in doing that, and financial support in doing that, when they did that, they explicitly excluded these guys, the Samaritans, because they were so repulsive to them. They didn't like them. And then when Alexander the Great set up his uh, center of, of business there, they hated him even more. So when the Greeks were on their way out, and the Romans were on their way in, the Judeans came in and basically uh, destroyed these cities. In 128 BC, they came in and they said, we're just going to take this city down to its foundation. Because they hated the Samaritans. So, just a, maybe a side thing, but in terms of languages then, when the Greeks came, they brought Greek. Yep. The Romans would have brought uh, Latin. Mm -hmm. And so on Jesus' cross was, what language? Arabic. Greek and Latin, right? Mm -hmm. Right. They wanted everybody to know he was a criminal of the state. Yeah. So Greek was still the language of commerce, though. Commerce, yeah. yeah. And a lot of the New Testament was written in Greek. Right. So it could be, well, so it wasn't just written for the Jews. No. Absolutely not. Because Pilate didn't recognize him as anybody special other than he was from this sect that they allowed certain religious practices to continue. So the Romans were um, tolerant of Jewish religious practice, but they were totally intolerant of any uh, rebellion against the state. And they wanted to know that Jesus, when he was crucified, he was an enemy of the state. He was causing rebellion. That was the accusation that was made. That he was a king. And that they wanted, you know, Pilate wanted everybody to know this is an enemy of the state. We're crucifying him as such. The worst form of uh, capital punishment. If you were Roman, you would never be crucified. If you were going to be executed in capital punishment, they'd chop off your head. So it's much quicker. Um, there isn't suffering involved. It wasn't intended to be a statement to all of the surrounding nations. So you're correct in that. But the Greek influence was very significant because it remained the language of commerce. 
Um, and that's why our New Testament is written in that uh, form of Greek. So I guess the point I want to make is, is that they hated these people. So the Jews, no good Jew, would ever come through here. They would rather take this harder route. And this is a harder route. Because to follow the Jordan River, there's all this overgrowth. When they traveled, if you wanted to travel unencumbered uh, and unhindered, you traveled the ridge routes. You traveled the top of the ridge. You didn't travel in the valleys. The valleys is where the critters that would bite you uh, or eat you or make you sick lived. So you avoided the valleys. You traveled the ridge routes. And so to travel this path along the west side of the Jordan River up here to, uh, in view of this city right here, was uh, ancient Betchan, uh, Skythopolis, is what it was it's called by the Romans, is kind of the, the entry point into this valley. Um, this is, um, I'm trying to remember the name of the river that's right in here. Uh, starts with an H. Anyway, this is the Jezreel Valley, and they would see Mount Gilboa, and they would see um, some of the historical sites that they would recognize, right? They would cut in, and then they would take the classic route up through the ridges, the ridge routes, into um, Galilee. That's how a good Jew would go. Jesus had to leave, right? He had to, but it said he had to go through Samaria. Why did he have to go through Samaria? That's, that's one reason. It was a divine appointment. He, uh, he knew that going to the Samaritans um, would, uh, that he was the savior of the world, that he needed to bring that message to the Samaritans. And it's not so much that he needed to bring it, he needed to show his disciples that that's what they needed to do. That's what discipleship means. To go to your enemy and bring him the word of life. Because he's not your enemy, he's your brother. Right? Big big message in the time. So there's divine appointment. But there's also, if he takes this route, that's how they're going to arrest him. They arrested John there. The soldiers are already there. They're already laying wait for Jesus. But they want, you know, it's not the conspiracy that existed later when he went to Jerusalem. But there's a, hey, let's shut down these, these uh, crazy Jews that are out there wearing camel hair and, and uh, eating honey and locusts. Let's, let's arrest them and get them out of the picture. So he could not take this classic route of the Jew, even though it was more difficult. He had to go into Samaria. And that's exactly what it says. He had to pass through Samaria. If he was going to fulfill his mission, that to which he was called, he had to obey God and go to the place that no good Jew would ever go. And it says, So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near a par the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. You read about that in uh, Genesis 48. You also read about it again uh, when Joshua divided the land. And it says, And Jacob's well was there. So that's that well that was dug down to the living water. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was waiting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. So the sixth hour, this is Roman time. The Jews would uh, name their day from sunrise to sunset, and their day started at sunset and then went forward. So the first hours of the day would have been in the darkness leading up to sunrise. But the Romans started at sunrise, and so uh, 6 a.m., their, their clock starts 
six hours later, it'd be noon. So this is in the heat of the day. And Jesus is doing this journey, and he, he comes to this uh, well here outside of Sychar, um, near Shechem, and he's exhausted, showing the full humanity of the Christ. Sorry. Give you a clock for it there. So we see both um, the Christ who is fully divine, the one that was revealed by John, whom God sent and speaks the words of God and gives the Spirit without measure, is exhausted physically. And he comes to this place um, and he is, is thirsty. It says, There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. This is where I'm going to stop because my wife just pointed out. <laughs> that sentence has a lot in it. It's the, the heat of the day, not the time when women would draw water. And drawing water was a woman's job, by the way. So women were second-class citizens or third-class citizens. Children actually had more rights than women. Um, so they were already in a culture where they were not valued. And the jobs that they were given were not the happy jobs. Right? Let's go draw water and draw back to the, to the city. Because the well was outside the city. Um, and it turns out that this woman is coming in the heat of the day. So she was an outcast of women. That's the implication. You don't come in the heat of the day to draw water unless that's the only time you can be there because you're a social outcast. So Jesus is sitting there and this Sumerian outcast woman comes to him at the well and a good Jew would, one, not been there, but if he did find himself there, he would have certainly covered himself and turned away. He would not have said, hey, give me a drink. <laughs> so Jesus is demonstrating exactly that loving kindness of God. Because we're going to read, as he reveals this woman's history for her, just like he revealed the history of Nathan for him, um, that only God could know really what's going on. And Jesus basically pegs her. He lays her bare. Um, and this woman has the courage to continue standing in the light and to try and understand the difference between heaven and earth. Because Jesus is speaking uh, using phenomenal language about uh, a heavenly revelation. He is the bridge. He is the ladder. Jacob's ladder that bridges heaven and earth. And that bridge is now there for that woman to cross. And he has to somehow challenge her to turn away from her broken cistern to turn to the living water, the living God. And in doing that, he knows that's his mission. Being totally exhausted, he says, hey, give me a drink. He starts the dialogue. And it's transforming. We're going to stop here. Um, but what you're going to see is you're going to see a response of discipleship. So this is what the, the, the woman that we're going to, the Samaritan woman, we're going to see her as a classic example of what it looks like to follow Jesus and what the obligation is associated with that. 
because we are worse than Samaritans, by the way. The Samaritans were held in higher regard than the Gentiles. We were not even worthy of the crumbs that would be given to the dogs that would fall off. That's what it says about us. So when those people went to all the world, they came to us. They did what Jesus is modeling. And what we see is a response of discipleship, and that's what we want to walk away with. And obviously you didn't get to it today. I apologize, we started late. Uh, Let's go ahead and close the prayer. Lord, we thank you so much for uh, the challenges that you uh, present in our life. Not that we feel good about that. We certainly don't like the, the, uh, the difficulties that we encounter from time to time, but difficulties by your hand, both to correct us and to guide us, are good, and Lord, uh, teach us to embrace that good in spite of the challenge. Lord, that we know that all good things are from your hand, and that your desire is for our good, not our, our destruction. And so, Lord, um, help us be aware when it's your hand, um, and not our own uh, suffering because of our stupidity and sin, um, but Lord... Help us see truly when you're working in our life. And let us respond uh, to you, turning away from that which we might think is good uh, and brings life which is based in nothing but the world. And Lord, help us to turn to you, the foundation and and the source of true life. Lord, um, we ask for that uh, as we study through your word. And I know many of us have been on that road for many years. And Lord, as you continue to challenge us, we know you're not done with us. Just thank you for that, that you've not given up on us, even though we're kind of hard-headed sometimes, stiff-necked, as the Bible says. Lord, um, help soften our hearts, soften our heads. Um, Lord, we ask that you would continue to provide for us, that you would uh, protect us, and that we live in a dangerous world, a world that would suck us in uh, and try and define what is good and right. And Lord, help us to continually challenge that with um, what you reveal to us as truth. Um, Lord, help us to always uh, draw near to your spirit and that your spirit would uh, be within us and that your truth would be within us. And Lord, we thank you for that. Lord, we ask for your blessing on this day. We ask for your words to uh, be presented through Pastor Bob this morning as he presents your word to the congregation. Lord, um, we just ask that you bring us back safely if it's your will uh, this next week. Uh, We thank you, Lord, for all of this. In your name we pray. Amen.